0: Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Need Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge.
1: And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles.
0: We hope you enjoy listening. We've had so many conversations about the publishing process and how it drives you completely mad.
1: It does. Every day it drives you mad.
0: So we thought this time, let's actually have a conversation about that. What are the things that are driving you mad? And if we were to reinvent publishing, what would be the things that you would really want to get out of a new system? So let's start with what drives you mad?
1: Well, what drives you mad is every publisher is different. They have different systems, different websites, even ones that use the same underlying system will have it configured in different ways. And they make it just so convoluted to do everything. I mean, maybe you're a co-author on a paper and it requires you to say that you are a co-author, confirm your co-author, which is great. But then you have to go and sign up to a website and you can't remember your username because you have 20 of them for this journal. And then you go in, and then it asks you not just for, you know, to confirm, but it asks for a million different details that they probably don't need. Like, do they really need my physical, you know, address and things like that? And 10 different topics uh, that I am an expert on. Well, I, I know that they're going to use that, you know, just to spam me reviews. So, you know, they, everything seems to be overly complicated when it comes to publishing. And it would be great if they could just simplify 99% of that stuff.
0: So it sounds like the problem for you isn't so much the publishers as it is the systems they're using and the hoops they make the researchers jump through in order to publish.
1: Well, that is my only interaction with the publishers is through these systems. And I can see why they have the systems there. They want high throughput, low cost systems for tracking very complex things. But they could, you know, take a leaf out of Google's book and just make it a little bit easier on the people who are, you know, often say for a viewer giving up your free time or as an editor giving up your free time or as an author who's probably going to end up paying an APC or something like that, you know, we're giving it to you for free. Could they not just make it a bit easier? You know, even even paying taxes is easier, and that's saying something.
0: <laughs> and what that makes me wonder is why is it that researchers keep doing this? Why haven't publishers been forced to improve their processes?
1: I guess if you're a monopoly, then you're going to act like monopoly, and everyone has to use your system if they, you know, if you want to grant them your business. Now, one big improvement that I've seen over the years actually is the use of ORCID ID for logging in. Because unfortunately, in the past, every time you would get a review, they the journal would set up a new account for you. And also, as an author, you'd have your own accounts. And then also, you, you just get a pile of these accounts usernames, passwords. You can never remember any of them. So you always have to reset them every single time you log in. PeerJ actually uh, copped onto this. So now every time you try and log in, they'll just send you a magic link. Your email, which is actually great, because they recognise that no one can ever remember their login details for these systems. So the use of Orchid ID means that you then have, you know, a standardised system for logging in. And you don't need to remember all of these different logins. You can just use the one, which is great. So thank you very much for doing that. Now, could you just go and fix everything else?
0: And the nice thing about ORCID as well is it also helps with the disambiguation of which which Andrew J. Page are you of all the Andrew J. Pages there are in the world.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, it's so complicated uh, when you get into that. And hopefully this will be the, the way that all the journals go with that kind of thing. But actually thinking about the review process there's a few things that i want out of it and a lot of other things i don't want out of it so at the end of the day i want a piece of text that i can put into a paper and say cite this you know a doi i'm not asking for much and a paper to be hosted somewhere forever hopefully
0: yeah
1: i know that's asking a lot but you know i don't need all the other fluff around it and they can make it quite complicated sometimes i'm a big fan of preprints so Every paper that I control, I'll always put it up on a preprint server. And as a co-author, I'll always try and influence co-authors to put it up as a, as a preprint. Some of them are a little bit reluctant, but usually you can win them over. I've never had problems with preprints before. And so, you know, you put your paper up on, on the preprint server. Bioarchive, Medarchive and the like have made it straightforward. But I get so frustrated when you've gone to all the trouble of putting a preprint up You've gone and entered information, you know, every, you know, the author's first names and last names and middle names and institutions. And you might spend, you know, an hour just putting in the author details, you know, basically the cover page of the journal article and you know it takes so much time to do that and then you go to submit your paper to and you have to repeat all of that again and then it gets desk rejected by an editor and then you have to go and enter all the same information again you know into another journal submission system and you end up doing all of this administration totally unnecessarily it's just a lot of work so why
0: bother if it's on the preprint server anyway why bother with the journal stage why not just have it out there and move on
1: yeah absolutely Unfortunately, the way academia works at the moment is they treat preprints as a lesser thing because it hasn't gone through peer review I know there is other systems where they will overlay, you know, review- post preprint reviews on top. of And it's a reasonable idea. It's not very common. Like I think Welcome have an open journal that do that. So ideally, I would love to be able to submit my preprint directly to a journal and skip all the rubbish. Mm -hmm. I've tried it on maybe three or four occasions. It's never worked very well because I think on the back end, all it seems to do is email some stuff to the journal. And then the journal does a little bit of putting in stuff. But then you have to go through the process again and add in all the missing details that they asked for that the uh, preprint server didn't. Mm -hmm. So it is not really a time saver unfortunately i think they just need to simplify the whole process for example right here's a simple thing could they not just allow you to upload an excel spreadsheet with the details of the authors Mm -hmm. or could they not just allow you to put in the orchid ids maybe in in a long list and leave it at that and then that goes and pulls in all the data what they make you do is just jump through the most ridiculous hoops you know you put in a say maybe an orchid id it goes and you click and it looks it up and then a pop-up box appears and then you know you do all of this you know kind of hoop jumping it's as if it was invented by someone who's never actually been involved in the publishing process on the other end and you know they've looked at it through this telescope and said oh this is what they need
0: Mm mm-hmm I guess when people are focusing on the data that they want to have rather than the user experience of the researcher that's having to go through the process that is the issue that we're having isn't it
1: yeah it'd be nice if they could sit down with people and just kind of understand what are the pinch points and you know what takes a lot of time mm-hmm. if you have a lot of authors on a paper it's, it's going to take a while and then when you get into the more medical journals There are a lot more hoops and rightly so in some cases, you know, you got to do lots of checklists and put things into very particular formats and it can be quite an ordeal just to get what you need together for a paper. Mm -hmm. And then if it gets desk rejected and you have to go to another journal, which has different requirements, it can be soul destroying, and it it drains a lot of time unnecessarily. It doesn't add much. Usually there are very little changes between the preprint and the final published version in between there, yes, it undergoes peer review. There will be a little bit of change, but fundamentally, not much changes.
0: So if you had your way and you were designing, imagine none of this existed. There are no preprint servers. There are no journals. There are no any of this. And you wanted to design a system which enabled researchers to get their work out there for the whole world to see with some kind of quality check of some variety, what would you do? Where would you start? What would your ideal system be?
1: Okay. You need somewhere to put the papers. So a hosting service that's license central and you need a way of searching it. So that could be something as simple as a website where you upload a paper and then google scholar comes along and indexes it and pulls the information down or even better how about you upload a paper in a standardized format and say the website then parses the authors and it parses out the information that it needs and magically puts it somewhere
0: so it pulls the metadata rather than the researcher having to type it a million times
1: well i wouldn't mind putting the metadata in you know i come from a Uh, background where I use LaTeX quite a lot, which is the most beautiful typesetting language you'll ever encounter, but it's more specialist and you need to have a particular mindset to be able to use it. So for the Journal of Open Source Software, which is a very different paradigm and I think uh, works very well, you basically upload your paper your abstract and you have some markdown effectively within that mm. and it compiles that into a pdf for you so it knows what the author is it knows all the information because you've said you know you've put it into this particular format you've given some contextual information about what's their semantics and it's great it works really really well but it's not for everyone
0: so you've talked about the need for a platform and you've talked about the need for search functionality. And we've talked a bit about the metadata that surrounds that content. What I haven't heard you mention when you're describing your ideal system is any kind of peer review or quality control.
1: So then another layer on top of that, right, is I need a URL which is going to be permanently accessible. And that's where I guess where DIYs come in. And I know they cost about a dollar or a pop. So we need a doi and the quality control on top of that that that's your peer review now often that's hidden away for most journals you never ever see the reviews you just have to take on good faith that the reviews have been done when you read a paper
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but they may not have been or the reviews may have been really really poor and it's only when there's a scandal that you often get to see the reviews and you often get to see like pretty dire stuff, you know, either stuff being rejected outright or, you know, the reviewers, you know, saying, well, actually this is, this is, you know, a light review rather than an in-depth review, you know, this is a great paper from Andrew, Mm -hmm. full stop. That's not a proper review. Or it might
0: be somebody that has expertise in one area and can critique that, but doesn't have expertise in another area. and Therefore, there are areas where there just hasn't been a proper peer review of that part of the paper.
1: And so then you do have other websites which are unrelated to the publication doing you know post review as a pub peer and then things like that and they do a very good service adding additional comments in an, on an independent website and it, often that's very useful particularly if there's errors or, or some kind of issues with the paper it allows for a different level of uh, criticism but it would be nice to have the peer review open mm-hmm. beside the paper in a way that can't be tampered with. So you can see what's there, but also you can see the progression as well. I, I personally would like to see the history, you know, what has changed between the I'll say, the, the preprint and the published version. Actually, to be honest, I don't care about the pu- final published version these days. Usually I'm reading the preprint. It's actually very, very rare these days. Mm-hmm. I will read a very recent paper in its final published form. Usually, I will read the preprint because that's out probably a year before the final published version. And, you know, who cares about it being a little bit more pretty?
0: It's really interesting to hear how little attention you pay to the final published version. And, of course, it's not just that it's a prettier version, it is also a version that has had somebody independent that wasn't part of the research project giving an external perspective on the research. And I've heard others say that they really value that process and that that massively improves the paper. And I know you do a lot of peer reviewing yourself, and I'm just wondering why, if you think it adds so little, and if you usually just read the preprint, then almost what's the point in the peer review bit?
1: I guess I want my papers to be peer reviewed and published because that's the blue tick mark that you want at the end of the day. But really actually thinking about it in more detail, for me, it's not that these papers have been published and peer-reviewed as a sign of quality. I have to blindly trust that the publisher or the journal has undertaken peer review in a, in a high-quality professional manner, and they're just really managing the process on behalf of independent academics. So I have to just say, look at it and say, oh, uh, I don't know, The Lancet or Nature, yes, well, their high quality publications, they wouldn't let any crap through. So they must have, you know, gotten a solid peer review for this paper versus something that's maybe, you know, the, the bottom feeder journals, which just kinda are there sucking in APCs and, you know, God only knows what kind of peer review they solicit. You know, do they get one reviewer, do they get ten? You know, what happens if that one reviewer says yeah it's all right or it's not good will they still allow it through i've heard horror stories of some really awful papers getting through Mm -hmm. and you wonder how do they get published and get through the peer review process because they're so absolutely wrong but you know often you'll use the, the journal title as the the measure of quality of the peer review that you accept. But actually, it's all done in blind faith. Mm -hmm.
0: And there are so many stories of retractions from the supposedly high-quality journals that actually that blind faith is a major issue. So what I'm hearing then is not that you don't value peer review, but that without that transparency around what kind of review that has happened, then... it it may as well be non-existent.
1: Absolutely. If we're expected to have our data open and our results reproducible, then why can't the peer review process be open and reproducible?
0: And in some places, peer reviews are open. Some journals do have that model.
1: It's a rarity though. It really is. It's Mm -hmm. not a common thing in, uh, in the fields that I work in.
0: What's your view on whether peer review should include the peer reviewer's name publicly as well?
1: I've signed a few reviews. It's not necessarily a common thing. Not all journals allow you to do it. Some journals, particularly where where that particular subfield, you know, don't do it. Don't even allow you to do it, even if you did it. So it, it's there's a big if. It depends. I think if a reviewer wants to be anonymous, then okay, that's fine. But obviously, you know, if, if they're saying things that aren't very nice, then obviously that, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people may feel that if they have to sign their name to it they can't be f- properly critical they have to have niceties politics comes into play maybe the person is in the next building to them and they see them every you know week for lunch you know in, in the canteen and they don't want to you know annoy that person because there might be blowback or maybe th- that person they know might review their grants uh, next year, and you know they don't want to mean things to have been said, or people misinterpret things that are written down. So I can understand the level of anonymity, but you know, often you can work out who the reviewers are because most people work in very small fields, and you can you can figure out who probably did this, or at least the research group that they came from based on the kind of things they're saying.
0: So, in terms of your ideal scholarly publishing landscape, what I'm hearing is a place to host the content with the search functionality and good metadata with some kind of element of peer review but it needs to be transparent and you recognize that that peer review could be anonymous it doesn't necessarily have to be signed but maybe having that option for those who feel confident enough to do that is fair enough
1: Yeah. And of course, I don't mind paying for this kind of service either, because we're paying, you know, thousands, thousands for APCs. So, you know, if you have to pay a little bit for this kind of service, then why not? We know Mm -hmm. the money is there. Could we not redirect some of that to investing in some kind of system where we have all of that, all of those positive benefits? but without maybe a profit-making company, you know, raking in huge amounts of cash. Maybe we're talking about something that has already been solved and I just need to go and find new publishers.
0: Well, it does already exist because Faculty of 1000 have a platform of this sort of functionality. It's also being rolled out in different institutions. I mean, you really do seem to have just listed all the criteria that they may have used to design these systems. So if they're already out there and if you view that as the perfect solution, why aren't you putting all your papers there? And what would it take to get you as a researcher to change your approach?
1: That's a really good question. And I have used some systems like the Journal of Open Source Software, which does everything on GitHub, and it's it's very automated. And actually, they don't charge anything for peer review or for uh, publishing papers. I guess. What holds me back is probably the journal title. And that is a measure of quality and it's a chicken and egg problem, right? If you make a new journal, you don't know is that going to be a good quality journal at the end of the day and if it's a new form of publishing versus Mm -hmm. an established journal that's been around for a few years. You know, it's got an impact factor. You know, people are actually in your field. are reading it and you know, people in your field are citing it and so you use that as a proxy to understand where should your stuff go if you see some of these platforms and they're kind of an open dumping ground then that's a bit of an issue you know for example say journals like plus one published like what 100,000 papers a year that's you know that's a lot of papers and I would imagine a certain percentage of those will be really good, but a certain percentage of them won't be.
0: But we've established that a big name journal does not equal high quality research necessarily. And that many, many papers are retracted even from the supposedly high quality journals.
1: But are they only retracted because lots of people have read them and found it, the a little errors. People have gone, oh, that's a nature paper and they've got an error in there. I'm definitely going to pull them up on that versus a paper that, you know, maybe one or two people's site no one really cares about and would you really even bother to go and send a letter to the editor?
0: So from where I'm sitting, as somebody with no skin in the game, because I am not a researcher in my own right, what I wonder then is, surely the critical appraisal skills of the reader of any paper is what then becomes important so you look at the papers that are relevant to your area of research and you do a bit of a quality filter and effectively approach it in that way yourself you've told me already you can't rely on peer review process we've talked already about things being retracted Surely the only natural conclusion is improving information literacy skills and getting your librarians to make sure that all your researchers are able to do excellent critical appraisal.
1: Yeah, I guess an issue for me would be just the sheer amount of papers that are out there, right? I can't read them all. Mm. And so, you you know, I'm already drowning in papers before I've even started.
0: How many of them are directly relevant to your field?
1: many of them will be there's this very long tail of stuff and it can look very relevant and a lot of it will be in oh god i i don't mean to say this in a bad way but a lot of them are in bottom feeding journals said, already. like i'm not going to name companies but you know they're out there and they they rake in vast sums of money by charging whatever, a couple of grand for each paper, and then everything seems to get, get accepted no matter what. Mm-hmm. So there is an ocean of information, and I, I have to admit I discount a lot of papers straight up just based on where they're published. Mm-hmm. And that helps me, you know, because it gets rid of some papers I don't need to read. Actually, I tell a lie. Most papers that I get are usually come via Twitter to be honest. And they're usually preprints. They're by Archive, Bioarchive. It's very very, very rare that I actually look at the final finished paper and that's usually when I'm following something else or I, I need to get a particular reference to support something. And I, I know I've got it in my head, I know this fact exists because I read it somewhere, maybe in a news article mm. or on Twitter, or whatever, and then I go and search for it and find the final paper. It's actually very rare that I actually read the paper. I've usually read it as a preprint.
0: So you personally Despite what you were saying a minute ago, actually don't use the journal label in that way. I but suppose you have so. that perception when you're choosing to publish.
1: But okay, so at that point then using the research group as the measure rather than the journal, mm-hmm. because usually I follow particular people on Twitter mm-hmm. and they will come from particular small domains of, people so actually uh, it's probably a bit of an echo chamber thinking about it
0: yeah and that's a risk as well and it also relies on your prior knowledge as somebody that's been working in this field for what 10 years now so you have the privilege of that amount of information and those connections that you've built up over that time but that's not very helpful for the PhD student that's trying to figure out where to start
1: No and like I mean I'm on slack groups and whatever and we see papers as well like there's often usually paper channels or journal club channels Mm -hmm. and it is interesting actually when a controversial paper does come out everyone in my little field seems to know about it instantly you know the same day it is the hot topic everyone is talking about which Mm -hmm. is quite interesting you know everyone kind of jumps on these things they know this is an important paper or they know that there's been a a flaw in it like there's a recent paper from nature genetics and they they messed up some numbers for sars-cov-2 sequencing for the uk and everyone within you know minutes was you know livid because they they got the figures wrong and Mm -hmm. you know very very nuanced stuff like but because it was in a high quality journal like nature genetics and it was our data that they were misrepresenting. You know, people got very annoyed with that. And uh, just proven
0: my point here about not relying on the on the label of the journal.
1: Yeah, what did they say in, in Schitts Creek? It's uh, what's in the bottle, not what's on the label.
0: Exactly. So okay, so we've established that the label itself is not important. But we've also established that when you're choosing where to publish, you do still feel as if the label does matter are are you calling me
1: a hypocrite no
0: no i'm exploring this because i think you will not be alone in this i think there will be so many researchers who are not going i get all my papers by always reading whatever comes out for this one journal they are getting it from a variety of sources I do worry a little bit about the diversity of those sources. If it's people you already know, then who are the people you're missing? So I think that's maybe something to reflect on. But I bet you're not the only person that is finding content in that sort of way and really not factoring the journal label into your process at all of that.
1: Well, I mean, they're preprints, so there is no journal at that point.
0: Exactly, and yet when you're choosing where to put your paper, you are telling me that the label is still important.
1: So that's because other people use the label of the journal as a measure of quality, right? Mm and so even though they're not meant to they might go oh that, you got a nature paper there that's a four star paper straight off without even reading it you know mm. and people apply these quick measures and unfortunately i have to game the system that way even though they're not meant to do it people do do that and so you know you have to cover yourself i know it's hypocritical and all that but unfortunately until we've had like a lot of change over the years and it's been beaten out of people it is still going to happen and people are still going to look down the reference and still go, oh, nature science, whatever, Lancet, yeah, grand, you've got, you know, like a couple of four-star papers, a couple of three-star papers without even evaluating themselves. And yeah, unfortunately, that's how it currently is, even though it shouldn't be.
0: So then that suggests to me that adds another dimension to if we were reinventing things, which is some kind of way of filtering some kind of, some kind of way of filtering to the right audience, so that you're able to reach the correct people with the content. We've got a place to host the stuff with search functionality, with some kind of peer review quality control.
1: Open peer review.
0: Open peer review, that it needs to be, you need to be able to see the reviews, even if you don't know who specifically wrote the reviews. And you want some kind of way of filtering for relevance, which might be built into the search functionality, but actually it sounds like you're not finding current search functionality is doing that sufficiently for you.
1: No, you need to know what you already want. Which isn't helpful in, in no, any way whatsoever.
0: It's really, really not. And we need to think of the diversity angle on that and making sure that the full range of voices can be heard if they're saying something that's relevant to what you're doing. Then you need to be able to find that.
1: I guess it, it depends on what what your area is. And like, I'm currently working in a teeny tiny little area. I know sars 2 is, is a very broad area. As in, it, it spawned over 100,000 papers in a year. But actually, when it comes to infectious diseases and using sequencing, the kind of bread and butter that we do, it's actually a teeny tiny community in the UK mm-hmm. of core people. And it's a teeny tiny community in the US and a teeny tiny community in, in Australia or whatever. So there's not that many people. And actually, you probably know or have met most of my conferences in, in the time when you did go to conferences, mm-hmm. which is nice. And I'm sure for a lot of people, you're doing such specialist things that you probably know the, the handful of people who are doing the you know exact same kind of stuff as you world over. And mm-hmm. if you don't know who those people are, then you're probably looking at too broad a field or you haven't done your work.
0: Yeah. And if you are right at the start of that journey, then your supervisor should be in a position to help you figure out where to start. You've given me loads to think about. So I've got a pretty clear picture of what it is your ideal system would be the big question of how people would have the confidence to shift to a system like that still feels a bit unanswered but maybe we can have a think and come back another time and talk about that
1: absolutely let's come back in a year or two and see has anything actually changed and have i actually gone and published in one of these different types of journals
0: i'm going to challenge you now every time you say you're going to publish a paper so you can put it somewhere else
1: sure why not <laughs> Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform you use.
0: The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadram Institute.